So a couple things before we jump into questions, and I do, I will jump right into questions in a couple minutes. But some thoughts that I had are first, I love that we're doing something like this because sometimes questions are like frowned upon, but the reality is that questions are really good. Questions are healthy. Um, God actually like God welcomes questions, and He gives us a pattern for actually asking questions. So if you go like if you go read the Psalms, you will often see in the Psalms that. Um, people like David are asking God questions and sometimes they are earnest questions and sometimes they're kind of the kind of questions that you read them and you're like, are you allowed to say that in church? <laughs> like sometimes it feels like David is kind of yelling at God as he asks him questions. But the thing is that God is never afraid of those questions. He never spurns those questions or rejects them. God oftentimes meets people most intimately in the context of them asking questions. And so just wanted to encourage you, even as you're here to ask questions, that God is totally okay with questions. He's okay with your questions. He's okay with mine. Uh, he loves when you ask them. Second thing I thought was that um, it's sort of comforting to know that nobody knows all of the answers to the questions. And I think sometimes, I know in my life, I have often looked to other people like leaders in my life and thought, well, they must have all the answers. And then I sit down in conversation with them and they will joyfully and humbly admit that they don't have all the answers. And so even in a context like this, someone like me, you know, I guess when I was younger, I sort of thought like, hey, maybe one day if I get to like speak at a camp, then I will be smart enough to know all the answers. <laughs> and it's just not true. Like I sit here with you guys in the room and I probably have just as many questions as you do, um, but happy to look to God's word together. And that would be the third, the third thing I would say about questions is I, th I think sometimes there is this expectation that leaders or people who have answers would be like the smartest ones or the most capable ones or the ones who can rationalize or do philosophy or logic. But I think if you want to be a Christian, the number one place that we go to find answers is not to the smartest people, is not to the latest uh, scientific findings or sociological conclusions or studies about this or that. The place that we go to find answers is to God's word. And God's word actually functions as something like a lens through which we see the rest of the world. It doesn't mean we ignore all kinds of other information. It just means we have one primary source of data that formulates what we believe and how we live, and it's the Bible. And so uh, hopefully in many of our questions and answers today, we'll just refer back to what God's word says um, because that should be the default posture of those who follow Christ is that we take our questions to God and we can meet him in his word. And what we'll find oftentimes is that he actually gives us, he gives us answers, not maybe in the way that we would like them, maybe not crystal clear yes or no answers, but we meet God oftentimes in the process of our questioning. So it makes me think of like Job, for instance. The book of Job is about somebody who suffers very, very greatly. He, he experiences loss and pain probably far over and above what you or I will ever even scratch the surface of experiencing. And the whole book is full of questions and at times even accusations against the injustice of God. Like, God, how could you let this happen? And what's so amazing about that is that um, God doesn't actually answer any of the kind of surface level questions that Job is asking, but God meets with Job in an undeniably powerful way as he asks the questions. And so it's a, it's a similar scenario for us. When we ask really tough questions and we wrestle with them, um, rather than expecting like pat answers or like kind of uh, fortune cookie style answers for the Bible to give us, oftentimes when we meet God in his word, 
he doesn't give us a direct or clear answer to our question. Sometimes he does, and it's nice when he does. But oftentimes the biggest and most complex questions that we wrestle with, we just get to meet with God as we wrestle with the question. And sometimes that's better than an answer. And then that the fourth thing I would say, and probably the last thing, is that it's also encouraging to me to remember that there are no new questions. <laughs> Despite the fact that we live in uh, a, a day and age, C.S. Lewis had this phrase called chronological snobbery, which means that essentially we just reckon that things that are modern are superior. And because we live right now and because of the culture that we have and the technology that we possess and all of this stuff, we just assume, well, we must be the smartest. We must be the first. We must be the best. But that's actually like far from true. If you spend any time reading um, saints of old who lived a long time ago without any technology and you read the things that they explored about God and the questions they asked and how they answered them, you'll actually, I think, in a helpful way, find yourself humbled like, oh, I'm not the first person to ask this question. I'm not the first person to wrestle with this. That's actually an encouraging thing um, because Christians for a long time... And I guarantee questions that we will talk about in this setting are questions that have been rephrased and re-explored throughout Christian history. That's actually kind of an encouraging thing. Um, all right, let's get some questions and uh, let's see what we can do. Let's let's chat. What questions do you guys have? This is a Q&A, so let her rip. Should I stand or sit? What do you think? Is this okay? I feel I feel comfortable like this. What's that? Uh, it is an intimate group. That's why I'm sitting down. I feel, I feel like back in the, in the New Testament times, actually, the teacher would sit and everybody else would stand, which I think is a little awkward. We'll just all sit. <laughs> who, would have, who would have the guts to go first? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. My probably my favorite place in the Bible is Romans chapter eight, and um, the end of Romans chapter eight, specifically verses thirty-one through thirty-nine. Those are those verses contain just ridiculous levels of uh, confidence in the sovereignty and the provision and the promises of God. So. You know, it says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Uh, it is God who justifies. Uh, it, it goes on to talk about, um, in Romans chapter 8, it says that, uh, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And it talks, it lists all of these calamities and all of these awful things that could happen to us and perhaps even the things that would happen to us that would drive us to a passage like that. And he says, no, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present to come, nor things to come nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans chapter, the whole chapter, Romans chapter 8 is like amazing. And then it finishes on this crescendo of confidence in God that I think is really, really helpful. And then a couple other places that I like to go, um, there's just tons of places in the Psalms. Uh, like one that comes to mind is Psalm 46, which 
just kind of acknowledges the uh, chaos and the difficulty and the pain that is very real and very present in the world, but finishes with this incredible statement of confidence in the character and the faithfulness of God. So places like that. Anyone else have a favorite? Where do you go when you experience hard times? I know you're supposed to be asking me questions, but yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Another question. Mm hmm. Yeah. So good. Yes. Like, I, I just love that. Um, I love that the Bible is realistic. The Bible never, uh, the Bible never sugarcoats what it will mean to follow Jesus. <laughs> Like, I think one of the times that we get the most frustrated and the most discouraged is when we try to hold God to promises that he never made. Like, we get disappointed and disillusioned and frustrated with God because we're like, God, my life is not easy. God, my life is full of suffering. God, I'm being persecuted. And he's, I feel like sometimes God is like, did you read what I wrote to you? Like, I told you all those things would happen. I didn't, I didn't promise you that it would be easy. So... I just find that really, really helpful, like places like Second Timothy, where it's like these are these are people we would sort of consider heroes in the Bible, and yet Second Corinthians twelve, Second Timothy, like they suffered and they questioned and they wrestled, and that's good. We will too. Any other questions? Yep. Sure. Yeah, 100%. So I think I hear what you're saying. There. Okay, for the. Yes, that's a good. You know what? You should be doing this QA. <laughs> okay, so the question is um, where we started with uh, the first message kind of assumed the existence of God, right? And so, yeah, for sure. Like, one of the things you realize when you're communicating is that you will only ever be able to say a fraction of the things that could be said or even should be said. Um, and so I think you kind of have to, you, you definitely have to pick your battles. And so definitely I, we are kind of assuming, we assumed the existence of God. And you could make a case that it would be helpful to uh, start with evidence for God. But because we're talking about, rather than... Um, the kind of focus of the theme being the apologetic kind of defense of the existence of God, we are arguing instead for the existence of truth itself, 
right? So I'm using as one of my premises to argue for the existence of truth as the existence of God. And I'm not, uh, I just didn't choose to take the time to argue like, hey, God exists. We, we, are, we are definitely kind of assuming that. Um, but that's a worthy question to explore and a conversation to have about like, why is it reasonable to believe that God exists? So I don't know if that, I don't know if that helps at all, but it's a, like a, a legit point for sure. Any other questions? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I have like rough numbers in my head. They they certainly won't be exact. Um, but what you but what you could do, which might be helpful, I'm going to repeat the question. <laughs> the, the question is, um, the question is about essentially the uh, the source documents for the scriptures. Like, why should we have confidence in the Bible? Um, if you if you will email me, I'll give you my email, and I can send to you uh, an article that I know has like all the statistics in it. But long story short, like there are um, there are more than five thousand New Testament manuscripts, I believe, that are within like a hundred and fifty to two hundred years of the writing of the New Testament. So they are very close to the original writing. They are very numerous in the volume, and they are very geographically diverse, meaning that. Uh, in they basically reached to all parts of the known world at that time, and the reality is like that. You already alluded to the answer in the question. There are thousands upon thousands of ancient New Testament manuscripts that we can kind of piece together to get the entire New Testament, and it's like many, many, many times over. And then other ancient literature that's even more recent than the New Testament has a small fraction. So I think one of the famous ones that they use is like Homer's Iliad, I think has like four copies. And it's un like the accuracy of that document is undisputed. And the New Testament has 5,000. So it was, a, it was far and away the most protected, copied, preserved, beloved, ancient document of history, the Old and the New Testament. Um, one, one really like interesting story about that that I, that I find really fascinating is that in the mid-20th century, as uh, this kind of like, there was a whole discipline called textual criticism, which still like holds a lot of kind of sway in Christian academia. But essentially, like he headed toward the mid-1900s, there was this prevailing idea that the Old Testament had such strong and undeniable predictions that were fulfilled in the New Testament that these kind of antagonistic textual critics, their working theory was that the Old Testament was actually written after the New Testament was written to appear as if it fulfilled all of the prophecies. And this was their best explanation of why it was so like on the nose and to a T, the fulfillment of prophecy in the arrival of Jesus and all of this stuff. And it was because we didn't have very many Old Testament manuscripts that were actually that actually predated the Old Testament. And then uh, 
one day, I think in the nineteen in the mid nineteen fifties, uh, a little shepherd boy in the Middle East, in the what's now uh, Qumran, he was throwing rocks into a cave, and as he threw a rock into a cave, he heard a big crash at the bottom of a cave, like the explosion of a clay pot, and he went down into the cave, and he found this massive collection of clay pots that were full of scrolls. The, those are now called the Dead Sea Scrolls, and all of those scrolls that were there had been kind of, I think, supernaturally preserved in this cave, in these pots, and it contained the entirety of the Old Testament, and it undeniably predated the writing and the time of the New Testament. So it's just kind of like a, as this theory began to prevail, God was like, eh, no, I preserved these <laughs> in a cave, so just so you would know, the Old Testament was written before the New Testament. Yeah. Please. From yeah, fr- from the Reformation. The Reformation yeah. Like, sure. Yep. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Well, the old white guy thing is kind of hard because they were all Middle Eastern. <laughs> so, no, I know 100%. 100%. This is what I would say to the other person is like. It's actually not old white guys because the people who wrote the Bible were from the Middle East. Uh, Sure, totally. Well, the thing is, so like you can take this huge body of, uh, so one of the arguments is that, right, you hear this all the time, that the Bible is like a game of telephone, which it gets translated so many times, by the end of the road, you can't really know what the message is, right? And that, that argument would work, except it's completely ignorant of how translation works. So the 5,000 New Testament documents, New Testament manuscripts that we just talked about, are, uh, like I said, some of them are within 100 years of the actual events that they record, which is, like over the course of 2,000 years of history, is shockingly close. And the way that faithful translations work is they don't use a recent translation to do a new translation. They go back to the original documents that we actually possess. So if you knew how to speak Koinonia Greek or ancient Hebrew, you could go like actually hold those manuscripts and translate the words into English. So for instance, I use the English Standard Version and the like the committee of people, the, of scholars and uh, uh, experts that put this translation together, they weren't using like, it's not like they were using the NASB and the NASB was using the KGV and the KGV was using this. So it's like a game of telephone. They were going to the originals and translating from that. So I, I don't know if that helps answer the question, but it is not like a game of telephone. We actually use the ancient documents themselves to do the translations. These are good questions. Yeah. I appreciate that. You're going hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great question. So the question is, 
I said in one of the messages that feelings don't determine reality, but then I guess is your question um, is your is your question kind of aren't all religions subjectively based on feelings because they all make exclusive truth claims? Is that is that sort of the question? Yep. Why would Christianity be any different? That's a great question. So I think that um, certainly religions, all religions, make subjective, they make objective truth claims. So they say that uh, what they believe is what's true. And I suppose the heart of your question is like, how other than feelings are we supposed to tell the difference between the two? And the thing that sets Christianity apart is that it is a, actually, it is a, it is a religion that is based upon historically verifiable events. So if you go to any, if you, if you take even any of the other like major world religions, so, or, or cults or whatever, um, you take something like, uh, take something like Islam. Islam is based upon the revelation of God to Muhammad, but it's based upon things that are, that are unverifiable. So you can't ever, you couldn't ever test the claims of Islam, but you can test the claims of Christianity because the core tenets of Christianity are based in historical events. And the number one historical event upon which Christianity rises or falls is what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. So all religions... You could make a claim that all religions are equally valid, except only one of them has as their God a man who was crucified and killed and then was alive again with an empty tomb, appearing to over 500 people, and then having followers who are willing to give their lives to testify that he was dead and then alive. And so what makes Christianity different and what makes it um Separate. It, what makes it true, separate and apart from our subjective feelings, is the historical realities upon which it rides. Most importantly, the resurrection of Jesus. So there are good, there are good historical arguments for the fact that the resurrection happened. It's not something that we just say, "Well, there's no way we can know if it happened." Um, it actually is documented in history and can be verified by. Uh, accounts that corroborate it both within and without Christianity, uh, its impact on the Roman world, what it did to Jesus's followers. Like there's good historical reasons to believe that the resurrection actually happened. And if it did, like, I think we could all agree if a guy said, Hey, I'm God. And then he died and then he wasn't dead anymore. You should probably believe what he says. <laughs> and that's kind of like at its core. I think that's the, that is the strongest apologetic for the validity of Christianity is that the resurrection actually happened. Does that help answer the question? Well, totally. So here, here's what it proves. Um, what the resurrection proves is that what Jesus says is true. Does that make sense? So if Jesus said, which he did, I'm going to die and then I will be alive again. Like think about it. if someone in the, if someone in this room says, I'm going to die. And then of my own accord and my own power, I will be alive again three days later. We would look at them like they belonged in the loony bin because they would. And people looked at Jesus like he was insane. 
And actually, the things he said were so blasphemous and so outrageous, they killed him for it. But he said, I'm going to die, and then I'll be alive. And then he did it, which is such an outrageous claim and such an outrageous thing to prove that it gives us confidence that everything else he said was also true. Does that make sense? So because he said something so impossible, and then he did it, it means we should take him really seriously when he says things like in John chapter 8 and verse 58, they, the religious leaders are looking at Jesus and they're saying, you're not yet 30 years old and yet you existed before Abraham. Because he's talking about like Abraham saw my day and he was glad and he rejoiced. And they're like, what are you talking about? You're older than Abraham. And he says, before Abraham was, I am. Which is, which is an unambiguous claim to be an eternal divine being. And so because he said, I'm going to die and then I'm going to be alive. And he did that. It means I should take him really seriously when he says I'm God. That's kind of the, that's the argument there. Yeah, totally. Yep. Yep. hundred percent. And that's actually like, it's a great question, and that's like exactly where we're going tonight, is the, is the words and the works of Jesus are, are his display of truth to the world. Like what he says and what he claims and then what he does is how God shows the truth to the world. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. These are great questions. Any, any other questions? Yeah. Yeah, I suppose, um, like what, so give me an example of a characteristic of God that you're, that you're wondering about. Yeah, I think that the characteristics of God are revealed. They're revealed to us, number one, in the word of God, right? Like he describes his own character. And then certainly, like, um, I think there is an element of faith in believing that what God says about himself is true. But then there is also, and this is where I would say subjectivity and feeling and experience is actually important in the Christian life. Because... God makes these claims about his own character and his own attributes, but then he also backs them up through what he does. And then there's this third part that is really important, which is that uh, people for thousands and thousands of years have testified through their subjective experience that God has been the things that he has said to them. So like if you, you just, you back up like, through all of the ages that people have been knowing God, 
through 2,000 years of Christian history, people have been testifying that they have experienced the love of God in the cross of Jesus Christ, that they have, that they have felt loved by God when they realized that the cross was the payment for their sin and the mechanism of their salvation. So take the love of God, for instance, as one of the characteristics. If God says, I am loving, so he says, you know, 1 John chapter 4, God is love. That's God describing one of his own characteristics. Then God, God, so God says it, then God demonstrates it. He loved us so much, he sent his one and only son to die for us. And then millions upon millions of individuals have experienced that love from God by receiving the finished work of the cross. I think like those three things, he said it, he demonstrated it, and then we experience it. I think those make a pretty good case that God, uh, that his attributes can be trusted. Um, at least that's how, that's certainly how it's worked for me and I think many other, other saints. Any other questions? Yeah. Yeah. For sure. You I mean, so the question is um So I think there's a couple couple ways we can answer it. So the question is, God says that he numbers all of our days, that he's the sovereign God, that he has a plan, that he knows the beginning from the end, all of that stuff. And yet we are, um, we make, we make genuine choices, right? So I think sometimes, so if your question is like, how do you perfectly reconcile those things? Way above my pay grade. (laughs) I have no idea. And, um, Truly, like there is no, there is no tweetable answer to that question. It just, it does not exist. But yes, yeah, totally. So the question essentially is, I want to get the point to your question right because I know this is a very common question. But it's essentially the question is, how should our understanding of God's sovereignty and our responsibility impact the way that we live? Is that a fair way to restate the question? Um, which that is a great question. So here's what I'll say. What the Bible reveals to us is that sometimes we go, we go wrong when we try to resolve the tension in that question because we will fall, we will fall in one side of like a ditch. So if you, if you overemphasize the sovereignty of God to the detriment of your responsibility, then you become a fatalist. You throw your hands up and you say, well, everything is determined, so it doesn't matter what I do. And that, like the Bible will never allow you that position. Like it doesn't, it, does, it never lets you off the hook. Like it's okay, God planned everything, so who cares? The Bible never gives you that option. The Bible also never gives you the option to say, you are more powerful than God, and what you do determines ultimate reality or ultimate outcomes. The Bible, because that would make you God, and you're not God. God is God. So there, we've got a uh, number one. We 
have to avoid trying to like solve the tension that's there and instead we we like live in the tension which sometimes can be when you say things like live in the tension it can be just an excuse for a non-answer but i am going to answer your question which is how should it impact the way we live and here's how um philippians chapter 2 has this amazing verse i i want to say it's like verse 14 or somewhere, uh, somewhere thereabouts. Someone open to Philippians 2 and tell me which verse it is. It's in Philippians 2, and it says, it, it gives this imperative command, and it says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So that's a command. 2.12? There we go. That's two off. 2.12. It says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, and that, that is a command that appeals to our responsibility. Paul is saying... Paul is saying it is your responsibility to exercise, not to accomplish your salvation, but to work it out, to live in a way that is in accordance with your salvation. And he says, do it with fear and trembling. Like he says, feel the weight of responsibility that you have to live in accordance with the will of God. But then he says, for, and he gives you the reason he wants you to live, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And it's not what you would think. You would sort of think there, if he gave you the reason for why you should do it, he would say, because you are ultimately responsible or because it all hangs on you or whatever. But he doesn't say that. Instead, he says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So he gives this statement of your responsibility and this imperative command. And then he also gives this statement of like the sovereign work of God in every person who does obey his commands. And he says, it's God who is at work in you. Like the end of the day, it's not you who saves yourself. It's not you who protects or preserves yourself. It's God who does those things. And so I think the way that that should impact our lives is number one, we should, not we should never live in fear that our salvation or our eternal protection depends on us. Instead, we should live with incredible confidence in a truly sovereign God who has a plan for every atom in the universe from beginning to end. And yet, we should live as if we are, which is what I think the Bible says we are. Sometimes we use really sloppy, sometimes we have, um, und we have really uh, imprecise definitions of terms we use like free will. But what the Bible actually says that we are is we are moral agents who make genuine decisions with real consequences. That's what, that's what the Bible says we are. If that's your definition of free will, then great, that's I think that's what the Bible says. You are a moral agent, so you make, you make decisions with ethical importance, and they are real decisions. They're decisions actually like genuinely based on what you want, like it corresponds with your desires, and what you choose and what you want has real consequences for you both now and forever. And you should feel the weight of that responsibility. So this is a beautiful place to live. Like, because again, you don't, you don't let go of the rope on either side and you don't ditch the tension. You live in the tension. You live full of confidence that I serve a sovereign God who's committed himself to me in covenant love. And I also know that I am, I am responsible for the decisions that I make and I will bear the consequences of those, those decisions. Does that help at all? Okay. Yep, you're welcome.
That's okay, me too. My definition of truth is that which corresponds to reality. Yeah. I did not say that, though perhaps I should have. In Probably. I did probably say some things. I, I did, no, I did not, like, I did not actually uh, give a concise definition of truth. Yeah, but sure, love and faith are not non-real. They are not, they're non-material. But uh, like mathematics is also non-material and yet it's just as concrete, right? I'm un- I'm unfamiliar with that guy, but he sounds he sounds great. Any other questions? Yeah. My pleasure. All right. Mhm. Oh wow. That's a hard one. What would I tell my younger self? Hmm. I think if I could rewind to like when I was your age, how old are you? 17. Okay. If I could rewind to when I was like in high school, let's say when I was like 13, 14, 16, whatever, if I could rewind to that, or if I could speak to myself at that age, I think the number one thing I would want to tell myself is that um, God is not withholding something from you. I think the most prevalent lie, um, I did student ministry for like eight or nine years, and I think the most the most prevalent lie that I saw students believe and that I myself believed in junior high high school was that God was God knew all of like the good things and the fun things that could be experienced in this life and he really didn't want me to have them. And so if I wanted to live like a full life or an awesome life, I sort of had to like circumvent God to get to it. And I haven't lived forever. I'm certainly no like sage. I just turned 30. Um, But over the last like decade in particular, I have learned that 
when God says, I, I had a leader in my life who used to say it this way, when God says don't, he means don't hurt yourself. God, God never forbids something that would be good for you, ever. And God never refuses to give you something that, that also would be good for you. Like God, God is not trying to keep you from pleasure. He's actually trying to maximize your pleasure and your joy and your happiness. He just knows that you, are, you and I are prone to look for it in all the wrong ways. And so I, I just would like, I would love to sit with my, you know, 17-year-old self and say, um, you know, I would, I would quote the scriptures to myself because it's the perfect encapsulation of what I'm trying to say. The thief comes only to kill and steal and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and life abundantly. And that's true. It's true in, the, in an ultimate sense. Yeah, I think that's, does that answer your question? That's what I would tell. That's that's the best advice I've ever been given. <laughs> the first thing that came to mind, which is super funny and absolutely not true, not not the best advice I've ever been given. My my dad and I used to do like manual labor all the time, and he used to tell me, I don't know why this first thing it popped in my head. We'd be like digging a ditch or something, and he'd be like, "Son, stay in school so you don't have to do this for the rest of your life." <laughs> not the best advice I've ever been given, but I guess if you don't want to dig ditches, you should stay in school. A few more questions before we go. Yeah. So God has everything Yeah, well, uh, so the question is if God has everything planned out, does the Bible have evidence that we have free will? That's the question. Um it certainly depends and this is why I took a moment to talk about it, it certainly depends on what you mean by free will. Um, what do you mean by free will? Yeah, so yes, a, a thousand times over, the Bible, the Bible says that you can choose what you want to do um, and that you will be held responsible for those choices. I think oftentimes when we say free will, at least most often when I hear the word free will, what is actually kind of meant by the concept of free will, I would describe as like sovereign self-determination, which is that uh, the sort of the, the Invictus concept, I am the master, I am the captain of my fate and the master of my destiny. <laughs> like no one decides for me. I choose where I go and what I do. I choose my, I, I choose my ultimate destination. And that's just not a concept that is like, I don't think that's a concept that is in the Bible or in reality. You, you and I don't have sovereign self-determination, and that began the moment you were conceived. Like, you didn't, you didn't choose to come into existence. Someone external to you acted, and you came into existence. You had nothing to do with it. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a crazy notion that we believe that our very existence was not determined by us. It was determined by someone else. And yet somewhere along the way, we pick up sovereign self-determination. Like we can decide the end from the beginning. We just can't. We're finite human creatures. Like we are created. So if by free will, someone means I make, like I am the ultimate determiner of my destiny. 
you you didn't you haven't had that since the moment that you were conceived like you didn't decide that you would be born or where you would be born or what circumstances in which you would be born you didn't decide any of that and um that's okay because you are limited and it's it's actually good that you're limited like you're not you or, or I we're not sovereign um but the bible does the bible does say that you make real choices and that those choices correspond with your desires. This is what's so powerful, I think, is oftentimes I think people also, they misconceive of salvation as like, um, people think of salvation as like, oh, one day I decided that I wanted God. And then I, uh, you know, I repented, I prayed for forgiveness and God forgave me. But the miracle of salvation is not that I changed my mind and all of a sudden I decided that I wanted God. The miracle of salvation is that God transformed what I wanted. That at one point, what I wanted was I wanted to reject God and disobey God and live my own way. And then through the miracle of new birth, like regeneration through the power of the Holy Spirit based on the finished work of Christ, my desires were transformed so now what I want is to please God when that was impossible before. Romans, uh, Romans chapter 12 says that the mind that is, no, Romans chapter 8, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God for it. It cannot, it cannot obey God's law. That's something that has to be fixed on our behalf, not something we can change on our own. So the Bible does say that God is totally sovereign and that you make real choices that correspond to your desires. And what you need in salvation is new desires. Like you need God to transform your heart. Is that the dinner bell? Cool. One or two more questions? Yeah. Oh man, great question. The question was, what is our purpose and how do we know what it is? So, the um, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, like a, a catechism is like a, it's a categorization of a bunch of questions and answers. And actually it begins with this question, which is almost the exact same question you just asked, but it phrases it this way. What is the chief end of man? Which is essentially, what is our purpose? And I think that the, their answer is very, very helpful. And the answer they propose is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So, um, and then I believe it's Revelation 4 that says, um, it says that you, speaking about God, it says you created all things, they exist for your glory. They, you created all things and they exist for your glory. And, I think the one of the most powerful like narratives all throughout the scriptures is that when God creates, he creates in order to glorify himself, which for him is not like if someone else, if someone else, like someone like us wanted, uh, had all of the focus and the attention on themselves, they'd be accused of narcissism, like appropriately so. However, God, it just so happens that God is the most beautiful, most compelling, most generous being in all of the universe because he's God. And so it is good and right for everything to revolve around him and his glory. And what's so compelling about that is actually 
when we find our purpose there in glorifying God, so to glorify God is not to give him some sort of beauty that he otherwise wouldn't possess. It's simply to draw attention to the beauty that he already has. That's what it means to glorify God. And when we embrace our purpose to glorify God, we actually find the most satisfaction and joy in that because God himself is the source of everything that is good and true and beautiful. So if you choose to glorify something else, which we often do, and I I would say that's kind of a very succinct definition of what sin is, is when we choose to ultimately glorify anything other than God. Um, When we choose to do that, we're walking down a path of our own frustration and pain. But when we choose to glorify God and to enjoy him, when we live in what I think is our created purpose, that's when we find the most joy. John Piper says it this way. He says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And I think that's really helpful. I think that's our ultimate purpose. What a great way to end. Thank you for that question. Thanks for being here. Thanks for sitting with me for 53 minutes and uh, chatting about some questions. Super thankful to be here with you and thankful for students like you that lean in to what God has and ask questions and think and work on these things. Like, like I said in the beginning, oftentimes I think God meets us most powerfully when we're in the process of asking these questions and thinking about them together. So let me pray for you and then we'll go. Father, thank you so much for these students. Thank you for their eagerness and their desire to learn. Thank you for their humble posture towards you and towards your word. God, I pray that we would be teachable that we would uh, listen and learn and grow as we encounter you and as we um, know what it is that you've revealed to us. Thank you for even just reminding us that we are created and that you are the creator. Lord, we love you, and I pray your blessing upon these students for the rest of this week of camp and well beyond as they uh, journey in following Jesus. I know you have great things planned for their lives, and you desire to bless them and to protect them and to provide for them in every way. So I pray that you would do that, and I pray that they would give you glory as, they, as you do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.